while I'm getting set up here, I want you to take a couple of minutes to consider how would you describe God if you could only use two simple sentences. I'm not talking about the sorts of sentences that Paul the Apostle writes the Bible with. How would you describe God to someone if you could only use two simple sentences? It's not rhetorical, by the way. I actually want you to try it. So I'm going to give you 30 more seconds or so. Just think about it. I'm not going to ask you, for those that are visiting with us today, to turn to somebody else and say it necessarily if you're uncomfortable. I'm going to ask you to yell them out, everyone. Um, we'll get a few feedback. 30 more seconds. How would you describe God if you could only use two simple sentences? And believe me, I will cut you off. I can see and hear your punctuation. What was that, Tim? Did you say anything? Luke. Luke has this phenomenal... I'm going to tell you something about Luke. We have elders meetings, pastoral team meetings, where... Tim and I are the main culprits and others talk at length for half an hour, 45 minutes around a particular topic and Luke does not say a thing. And at the end of it we go, how's everyone feeling about that? And Luke goes, yep. And then says everything that we just said in about two sentences. He's got a gift. He is good. Amen. All right? That's a good start. He is everything. All right, we, we're doing okay here with just one sentence. If you, but you've got two, all right? But he stole my other one. All right. <laughs> he stole your other one. All right, you two can be a team. He is good. He is everything. All right, two simple sentences. Who else wants to throw? Um, kids. Kids. Anyone else? Any of the kids here want to... God is the creator of everything and everyone. And everyone. Yeah. One sentence. That's good. Who's that? Vinny. You do that, mate. Good job. God is love. God is love. God is my father and he will always love me. God is my father and he will always love me. Anybody else want to throw something? We've, we've had a number of people from this side of the room. Anyone from this side of the room? Oh, God is our creator and the only one. I like the italics. If you'd written that down, that would have been italics, bold, underline. Good. The only one that can save us. Thank you. I want to take two more. That's it. I want to see if someone can actually do two. We've only had one sentence phrases so far. They're all good. You've got two sentences to spend on this. Who's going to do it?
That's good. God has saved me from the wicked. And there's your full... I won't correct your grammar. You're allowed to start that sentence with an and. That's okay. And, and you've given him yourself. That's great. One more. Or whatever you say. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. God is the omni God. That's good. It's hard. It's hard, isn't it? To try to... To try to encapsulate God. The eternal... God, God who is so large, God who is so profound, God who is so eternal. I mean, how is it even possible to try and contain him in his fullness even in two meager sentences? I want to put you at ease. I think it's an impossible task for us to do. I don't think we can do it. The entire Bible is filled with sentences, if you didn't realise, all describing, to some degree or another, what God is like, who He is, how He acts. And even that is only what God thinks is necessary for us to know and not necessarily everything there is to know about God. And I I started wondering, how would God describe himself if he had only two sentences to give? But thankfully, I didn't have to wonder long. He already has done this. All we need to do is read it. But before we read it, and you'll find it in the book of Exodus. Don't show it on the screen yet. But you can find it in the book of Exodus. So grab your Bibles and start turning there. But before we read how God describes himself in two sentences, I want to set the scene a little bit. Because it's important to not only know what was said in the Bible. It is also important to understand when it was said, where it was said, why it was said, because answering those questions helps us grasp the significance of the what was said. So here is the the context for this two-sentence description that God gives about himself. The very first time that Moses meets God was after he'd run away from Egypt. Do you remember that? He had married in a region called Midian and had become a shepherd for his father-in-law. He looked after a flock of goats. Maybe you remember the story, maybe from reading it, maybe from a musical, maybe from an animated movie, but I'm sure you remember some part of that story. He was watching the flock when he saw a very strange sight. A bush that was on fire but wasn't being consumed. 
And from that burning bush, God spoke to Moses. God told him his name. And God began a process of commissioning him, sending him back to Egypt to lead his people home. That's the first time God spoke with Moses. The second time that God met Moses was on a mountaintop among the peaks of Sinai, not long after the army of Egypt had been swept away as they had tried to follow the nation of Israel through the Red Sea. God led the people into the wilderness and there he called Moses up the mountain to explain his law how God will interact with his people and how his people should interact with him. God made a covenant, a binding promise between himself and his people on the mountain with Moses. And as Moses listened to God, the people became weary, took matters into their own hands. They built an idol of gold in the shape of a calf and they bowed down and worshipped the work of their own hands. While God was actually talking with Moses and making a covenant with him about how he would act towards his people, they had already rebelled. God was furious. So was Moses. Not even 24 hours had passed and God's law had already been broken. And so symbolically, do you remember, Moses smashes the tablets of stone that the law had been engraved on and then he turned his back on his people and he turned his face towards God. All right, have you found Exodus? All right, look at chapter 34, find that one. Exodus chapter 34. This is where we're going to pick up the story and read it straight from the text. We're going to read the first four verses of Exodus 34. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. I'll have that on the screen for you if it's a little difficult to follow in the translation that you've got. All right, you got it? Exodus 34, verse 1, says this. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Just threw that in there. (laughs) Be prepared by morning. Come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one should be seen Anywhere on the mountain, even the flocks and the herds are not to graze in front of the mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. So now we are at a point where Moses is back where he had been not too much earlier. What would God say this time? He'd already burned in anger towards his people. Judgment had already been poured out if you go back and read the previous chapters. 
And yet he had also relented of his anger and he had spared Israel from utter destruction. And now the question is, what now? How will God respond? And he responds with a two-sentence description of himself. Just two sentences. And yet I think in these two sentences we learn something of the very essence and the very character of God. Here they are. Verses 5 and 7. 5 through to 7. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name. The Lord. Now, before we read on, let me just make sure that you... I've said this before, I know, but I think it's important. If your, trans, your, your translation that you're reading from, it should have that word Lord in capital letters. Did you notice that? Other places in the Bible you read the word Lord, maybe with a capital L, but then lowercase O-R-D. Right? If, you, if you read in your English translation the word Lord in capital letters, it's a... It's an attempt at the translators trying to write down for you a Hebrew name that is, we can't even translate it. In fact, the, the Jewish people, the Israelite people, weren't even allowed to speak it out loud. It's a series of letters. Sometimes we say Yahweh to try and join them together, but it's God's holy and special name for himself. And, and it's a name of power and strength and authority and lordship. And here, God came down in a cloud and stood before Moses and he, he told him his name, the Lord. We can't mistake who's standing on the mountaintop with Moses. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed. All right, here, here is what God says. It's two sentences in, in this translation at the least. The Lord, capital letters again, the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. Full stop. Second sentence. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Who better to describe God than God, right? More importantly, this is more than a description of God, like you would a definition, like you would look up a dictionary and look up the term God. What does God mean? Let's read a, a dictionary definition. This is not like that. This is God introducing himself. God wants to be known, not just defined. God wants to be in relationship with his people. But how will we know him, right? That's the question. How will we know him? Well, he tells us, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. 
This is how you should know me. The problem is, is there is the God that we want versus the God that we get. We've faced this problem as humanity ever since humanity was created. We have a long history of creating the gods that we want. We're prone to creating images of God in our own mind, shaping them to suit our own desires, fabricating our own deities that suit our own agendas. Imagine the deafening cheer that would have erupted if Moses had come back down the mountain and told the people about a God who had stopped at the end of the first sentence. Right? For a moment, cover up the second sentence and just kind of forget that it's there. We're going to read just the first sentence again. The Lord... How does God describe himself? How does he introduce himself? How would we know him? Well, this is it. The Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. Full stop. No more sentences. Now, that's a God that we could get excited about, right? And we should. Because that's what God says about himself. Who doesn't want a compassionate God? Who doesn't want a gracious God? What about a God that is slow to anger? Or that's faithful in love and truth? What about a God who can not just show bursts of love, but can maintain it for a thousand generations? A God who forgives evil? Yes, please. A God who forgives rebellion? Give me some of that. A God who forgives sin? Sign me up. Who doesn't want a God like that, right? Of course we do. Of course we do. That's what we want God to be like, especially when he's dealing with us. Not so much when he's dealing with other people, though. And here's the good news. God is like that. He is. That's exactly what God is like. I want you to hear this morning that that as God describes himself there in that one sentence, that's who you can trust him to be. Maybe you've been led to believe that God is some type of tyrant in the sky. Like the, the Greek gods of mythology dealing out judgment and bolts of lightning or randomly doing weird things to humans for a giggle. Maybe your image of God has been shaped by abusive human representatives, people who claimed 
the name of Jesus but acted like children of the devil. Or maybe your picture of God has been shaped by Hollywood. A blend of all the best bits of secular humanism but ends up being easily confused with Santa Claus. So then let God set the record straight. If you want to know him and know God on his own terms, then this is what he's like. The Lord. The Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. And none of that is wrong. All of it is right. And it's right, but it's incomplete. You see, even God had to describe himself with two sentences and not one. One sentence, well, that's the God that we want. But it's not the God that we get. We need both sentences to get the perfect picture. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in faithful love and truth. He maintains faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. Full stop. Second sentence. But. But. He will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. You see, sin has consequences. Sin leaves a stench that can be smelt by others, a stain that marks those around you, a virus that is contagious. Sin, it might flourish in isolation, it does, but it never remains in isolation. The consequences of sin ripple out always and effects can be felt for generations. So although the first sentence is true and remains true, it cannot be read without also receiving all that the second sentence says. Sin must be dealt with. Sin carries a cost and it is God who ensures that that debt will be paid. So the God we want is a God who sends Moses away after one sentence. But the God that we know The God that we know is bigger than that. The God we get knows that our made-up gods are always incomplete. He adds a second sentence for us. God is actively pursuing his people. He's pursuing you even this morning to show compassion and grace towards you. God doesn't have a short fuse. He's not itching for a fight with you. 
He's chasing down every possibility for a good outcome for your life. He's abounding in faithful love towards you, which means that his dominant characteristic when you notice what he's like, his dominant characteristic is love. And a love that doesn't quit. You'd also notice that God doesn't exist in some mythological type of fantasy. He always acts on the basis of who he is, the basis of reality, of love and truth. God has an unchanging character that is consistent from one generation to the next, never changing. No matter how much changes here on earth, he always seeks to forgive to forgive iniquity, to forgive rebellion, to forgive sin. But it's important for you to hear this morning that he will not turn a blind eye to the way that we hurt ourselves or others. He will not. The guilty will not go unpunished. Sin, though forgiven, must still be atoned for. Its debt must still be paid. And so it has. How can God both forgive people, yet not let sin go unpunished? Isn't that some type of conflict in God's character? The first sentence says he loves to forgive sin. He will. The second sentence says he will not let sin go unpunished. How does that work? Now we're getting to the heart of the good news. Now we're getting to the heart of the gospel. You see, in Jesus Christ, God, who became flesh, God has both pursued our forgiveness and he has enacted righteous justice against the guilt of sin. Flip over to the New Testament to one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Romans chapter 3. A couple of weeks ago, I said I'd like to preach more on this. I thought I'd squeeze a little bit of it in again today. Romans chapter 3, read from verse 21. We're not going to dwell long on this. I just want to let the words speak for themselves. Romans 3 verse 21 says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint... God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that we, so that he, sorry, would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot in that, and we're not going to explain much of it today, except to say, That God's character has not changed. Those two sentences that he introduced himself with to Moses remain true. 
They remain true in, in the time that Jesus walked this earth. They remain, remain true thousands of years later as we sit here today. God is a God who is just and loves grace and, and pursues sinners and loves to forgive. And His love is maintained to thousands of generations. God is that God. And yet, He cannot let sin go unpunished. He knows the effect of sin He knows the way that it affects not just us, but the generations that follow us. And he will not let that go unchecked. And so in Christ, he wraps all of himself up and he pours it out for us. And in Jesus, we still see the exact same God. The one who pursued forgiveness and yet dealt with sin. I still reckon it's pretty hard to describe God in just two sentences. He's so far above our way of thinking, far more profound, I think, than our human minds even, maybe even have the capacity to grasp. And maybe that's the best argument for him being God. Because if we think that we've got God all figured out in all of his fullness, well, either we are delusional or the God that we're imagining is too small. But if we're pressed to try, if we have to, describe God in two sentences, then I reckon that using the two sentences that God used is a pretty, pretty safe place to start. Do you remember? The Lord came down in a cloud, stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord is standing there. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and a gracious God. He's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So let's, let's take God at his own terms. Not just one sentence, but both. And from this fullness, this morning, he offers you Jesus. In Colossians 2 and 9, this is how Paul describes him, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Jesus. The entire fullness of God's nature. Both sentences a God who pursues you for forgiveness and love and a God who made sure that sin was dealt with. Do you have a God of just one sentence or two? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love towards us, faithful love that you can maintain for thousands of generations. We are so fickle 
We like people one day, we think they're fantastic the next, and then all of a sudden they're out, they're toxic. We've unfriended them. And you're not like that. You have pursued us with faithful love and truth. We thank you that your very nature seeks to forgive iniquity, forgive our rebellion, to forgive our sin. And yet, Lord, you are not unjust. You don't turn a blind eye. You saw the rebellion of this world, the sin of this world. And although you longed to forgive, you also knew that it must be dealt with. And so all of your fullness we find in Jesus. And we worship him this morning, our Savior who came to love, forgive, to die. Lord, your grace towards us is great. And so our response to you is simply to acknowledge that you are who you say you are. We submit to that. And we love Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Without him, this relationship with you to even call you Father would be impossible. And so we worship him today. For those that don't know Jesus, we pray that you would open their eyes to see him. That as Matt reminded us earlier, that there would be an earth shake in their life. The earth would shake, that the chains would come off, that their eyes would be open and they would be left saying, can you tell me about the way of salvation? And we are grateful, Lord. We are confident because of who you say you are that when someone says, I want to be saved, you are not far off. You step into that space and you are mighty to save. We thank you for all of this in your word and by your spirit. Amen.